Hey all, welcome to the Ground Game Podcast. I'm your host, Bushido Squirrel, and today we're talking Showers of Hope with Executive Director Mel Tilikatane. Uh, they've been up to a lot, not only helping the unhoused, but also dealing with relief from the forest fires and the, the urban interface fires we've been having. Uh, before we get into that, though, how are you doing today, Mel? Not bad, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So let's start at the top. Tell me a bit about uh, Showers of Hope, where it came from, the kind of capacity that y'all have built. So uh, we started an organization, organization seven and a half years ago called Monday Night Mission. And basically, we saw a need for food on Skid Row, and we were serving five nights a week, Monday through Friday, two to 300 meals a night. And then uh, through the years, we saw volunteers grow, and it was actually a very grassroots organization where we didn't accept funds. Mm. So we had a lot of volunteers and people like, hey, we have so many people. We have people who are willing to donate. How can we do more than just serve food? Mm-hmm. So then we looked at what was needed throughout LA and what we saw was a huge need for showers for the people on the street. Mm -hmm. So uh, two and a half years ago, we were like, okay, let's try to get one mobile shower. Let's see how it works and let's see what the reaction is. And so we started off with one mobile shower. Mm -hmm. We actually only started operating in May of last year, Mm -hmm. but the effects of this was so significant that we were like, you know what, let's scale this up. So um, definitely started scaling up. And right now we have two mobile shower trailers where uh, we're hoping to get a third one pretty soon. And we operate in 10 locations. And how many people do you serve in a, a normal week? In a week right now, we're giving around 250 showers. And is that all that you offer is showers or are there like other things that people can access when they come to showers of hope? Absolutely. Great question. So what we do is whenever a person comes to a shower, we have a couple of tables. One of the tables is everything they need before shower from a towel, soap, shampoo, toothbrush, toothpaste. And a second table for things they need afterwards from moisturizer to deodorant for women, hygiene items, tampons, pads. Uh, even makeup at some locations. We we actually were really lucky to have uh, the partnership of the Roosevelt Hotel down the street. Mm-hmm. So they bring a ton of items that are like, you know, all the things you need beyond a shower. So all our locations, it's you get all these things, not just to take a shower, but to stay clean afterwards. Mm-hmm. And some of our locations, we offer haircuts. Mm-hmm. And beyond that, and our goal is to connect people to services. So the cool thing is... Uh, not every week, but most of our locations, we work in a way that we have uh, case management teams come out to the location. So once a person's taken a shower, they have the chance to sign up for services. Mm-hmm. And do you do you follow a lot of your clients as they like move through that system? Do you know what happens to people after they visit the showers? No. So that it's it's difficult to track, except for the few. There are certain uh, clients who we become really friendly with. And their progress is easy to track, and we have our volunteers involved in as every aspect. I mean, literally yesterday, one of our volunteers, John Pelzer, who's, uh, you know, you're familiar, he was a yeah. huge fighter for Yes on 10. Um, yeah, we interviewed him uh, during the primary against um, Brad Sherman. So he, uh, so on Friday, a couple of gentlemen came to our shower, and uh, they recognized that they were both flamenco guitar players. So they recognized that, and then unfortunately, only one person had a guitar. So John went to work, he just, uh, same day, he went looking for places. Saturday, he went to Norman's Rare Guitars, and the owner, Norman, just 
was like, hey, here's a guitar, give it to the guy. So huh, nice. as of yesterday, both of the flamenco guitar players have guitars. Very cool. And this is kind of a weird question to ask, but when you see people coming back repeatedly, do you see that as a success or as a failure? Uh, that's a tough question. Um, you know, we have, we have our guests mm-hmm. who actually follow our shower two to three days out of the week. They'll go from location to location. So, for example, uh, we have our showers. Hollywood, we have two locations within one block and two blocks of right here. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Northeast LA, we have Highland Park, Cypress Park, MacArthur Park, and uh, South Pasadena all really close by. Mm -hmm. And you definitely get our guests like following the shower on those days. Um, It's a tough question to answer. You don't want to see the same people. Because, you you know, one of the toughest things in helping the homeless in L.A. is seeing the people on the street and knowing that there's really no services out there. Yeah. Like, it's really tough. So it's tough, but it's also on one way, at least you know that through what we do, they at least have access to showers a couple of times a week. Mm-hmm. And this brings me to uh, my next question, because you were big in pushing the hashtag she does and using that as a movement to kind of put pressure on City Hall, because you all aren't just concerned with providing showers, but with also solving homelessness in this city. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that interface and how that work kind of uh, ties together. Yeah, so the whole hashtag she does was uh, it's short for she does deserve shelter and protection, and thank you for your support on oh, that. Oh, of course. And You know, one of the things we learned with Monday Night Mission was through the years, the problem kept getting worse. Mm. And when people got to know of what we did, we get get, kept getting calls of people saying, hey, I know this person, they're homeless, they don't have a place to go. And those calls kept coming, but there was nowhere to go. We can can send people to Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row, but, you know, they're almost at capacity. Mm. And we were like, okay, the population who are homeless is growing and there's really nothing being done to house these people. There is housing coming, but at the rate it's coming, it's too slow. What do we do in the interim? And one of the most vulnerable populations is women because they, the chances of a woman on the streets anywhere in LA of, of being trafficked is super high. Mm. So we saw that and we're like, you know what? It's time we started advocating for more shelters. Mm -hmm. There's no reason that a woman has to wait six weeks to get into a domestic violence shelter. Mm -hmm. So we started advocating for shelters, and that's where we use the term hashtag she does deserve shelter and protection. Uh, We got the cooperation of the city and the mayor, and now the city is moving towards adding what we call bridge housing, which are a little bit more permanent type of shelters throughout the city. Uh, but those also come with some downsides, right? When they when they put in uh, a bridge housing, they also sort of increase police enforcement in those areas. And you see a lot of the interface between the, the unhoused and the police. What What is your opinion of that? Like, do you think LAPD is doing the right thing? That, again, difficult question, yeah. Steve. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a great question. You, you know, one of the things is we we see this huge, huge increase in the people on our streets. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, as much as you want to think of the good in people, the problem is you see a lot of people against those people, against seeing tents on their streets. Mm -hmm. And whether it be bridge housing or whether bridge housing was never in the discussion, one thing we saw was more and more policing, more and more money towards street sweeps. Mm 
Do we like street sweeps? No. But are they going to come anyway? Definitely yes. If they're going to come anyway, why not put something in so that we can add on to the number, add on to the resources that are available? So that was kind of like a caveat to the people, the NIMBYs. I mean, you know, the NIMBYs are the biggest right now. That's the political will. We've always had the money. The only thing that's missing is land and land in critical places where it's needed. So if the NIMBYs are so insistent on the street sweeps, why not get something for that in return? And that was the point in adding the bridge housing coming in. Do the street interactions help? No. You know, it's, but is it a simple issue in itself? Not really. And part of that is also because it's sad, but we've, this city has been so desensitized. I don't know if the word is desensitized or the city has come to accept that it's okay for people to be on the street, Mm. that the conditions that we see these people going through while on the streets is pretty horrific. If you look at the majority of the issues we see in people who come to take a shower, it's it's infections, food infections and whatnot. Mm. Why? Because you're on the street, you don't have access to showers, you don't have access to bathrooms, and there's everything from staff to type, you name it, everything's there. And you see these people suffering, so you need a way to alleviate that as well. So the problem is, how does LAPD respond? Is it correct? No. I think there's a long way to go before that approach can be used in a way where it's compassionate and it's effective. Uh, but was it going to happen? Were, were those street cleanups going to increase whether or not there was going to be bridge housing? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, answer is yes. It was going to. We yeah. already saw it coming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to things like uh, the Skid Row bathrooms and that sort of controversy, non-controversy, it seems like the city is making fits and starts towards building capacity. Uh, do you see Showers of Hope and private initiatives like that as complementing them, replacing them? Like, how do you see yourselves in relation to the efforts that LA is making? So Skid Row in itself is a beast. That's the truth. There's so many people concentrated onto a very small, you know, piece of land. Uh, nonprofits definitely play a big part in this, but for it to be a correct response, an effective response, the city has to play a big part. I mean, the project they came out with the refresh spot is a start. It's not it's not the needed response, but it's a start. It has to be expanded. But again, like not for nonprofits to kind of even for the shower of hope to combat or address a problem to that extent, it's not feasible. It definitely has to be a mass scale response. And when you are uh, thinking about like expanding the showers, expanding locations, how do you all decide that? Do you coordinate with the city? Do you just talk to volunteers and like other service groups to find out where the need is? Like, how are you deciding where to deliver services? That's a good question. So we um, we actually work with a lot of case managers. Um, seven years of serving on Skid Row, you know, you get to learn where the needs are. So what we did is we came up of a way of mapping where the most needs were. Mm 
Now, there are there are locations that approach us, like Hollywood for Southern Baptist down the street. They approached us and said, hey, we need your help. But when it comes to the other services, it's basically in a section of who has the most need, how can we help, how can we get help to help those locations. But we always try to target the places where the most need is. Mm-hmm. And this also takes me to my next question, which is uh, you've been very politically active with a lot of the She Does volunteers uh, advocating for bridge housing, going to neighborhood council meetings, city council meetings. Um, What's the kind of response you're getting from your community and what do you think needs to be done uh, more to make that happen? Are you talking about expanding bridge housing or the showers? Oh, bridge housing. Yeah. I think, again, it's a matter of you see both sides of it. You see a large part of the population who understands there's a need for it. And then you get a small but very vocal part of the population who are completely against it. I think we're at the point everybody under, majority of people understand the system we've had is not working. The problem we are seeing is there's a large base of support for solutions beyond bridge housing Mm -hmm. to housing to mental health care to substance abuse recovery problem is tim that huge majority only very few of that majority are vocal Mm. very few are willing to come out and say yes i support housing i support bridge housing Mm -hmm. unfortunately the very few nimbies or who we gone not in my backyard people they're a very small percentage of our neighborhoods but they are ultra vocal Mm -hmm. and because of that they unfortunately you know push the narrative Mm -hmm. so all all that's needed for this city to change the way it addresses homelessness is for the silent majority to speak up and when we talk about the NIMBYs, it's not just bridge housing. Most of the opposition we've seen in the last couple of months is against housing projects, not just bridge housing. Oh, okay. NIMBYs are literally like in Downey. They had a they had a protest against a, a building for forty veterans. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's 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 not just it's not just something that's focused on the west side or in the wealthy areas it's everywhere there's always that group of people who say hey you know it's frustrating their only answer is push them to palmdale or lancaster that's the only answer they have Mm -hmm. so until the silent majority speaks up we're not going to see a change and the whole point of the hashtag she does movement and even the shower of hope is engaging communities making communities giving a community a chance to become involved in the solutions and hopefully giving them the strength to come up and say you know what we need to do better than this we need housing we need bridge housing we need we need to do a lot more and it, one of the uh, letdowns from this election was obviously Prop 10. We both did a lot of work around trying to get that passed. Uh, it won in L.A. City, which I was happy to hear. Um, but it seems like we need more than just building shelters, building housing. Can you explain a little bit more about the bigger fight, like what we need to do on a state level to really get at this problem? Yeah, so I think they are two different problems, but then again, they are the same problem in one way. I think homelessness is the tip of the iceberg when we look at the housing crisis we have. Mm-hmm. Um, we literally have a housing crisis, unfortunately, the way I see it is it's at epic proportions. Mm-hmm. The reason I say that is the county of LA has 250,000 families. 
not not individuals 250,000 families they're tracking somewhere along the lines of 700,000 people who are on the brink of becoming homeless and you know we we always used to use the term hey you're one paycheck away you're from homelessness but the truth is most of these individuals have already taken out loans they that paycheck passed there's really nowhere nowhere else other than the fact that when the next rent increase comes in that they are going to be home they are going to be homeless but it's a different situation as well because i don't know if you saw the article uh, steve lopez did last week about this the uh, LAUSD district with the high, yeah so when you look at a majority of uh, low income neighborhoods in LA kids are starving i'm not talking homeless kids i'm talking kids who are housed are starving so we have a critical issue at hand where it's a combination of out of control rents and also a lack of work a lack of employment so both of those things have to be addressed um you know we are always still looking at ways how can we push the rent control narrative through how can we get something on those points but part of what's leading to homelessness as well is also the fact a lot of retail stores and a lot of the major employers in LA what they're doing is they're not eliminating jobs but they're eliminating the number of hours they give their employees so they're going f- it's tough to find a 40-hour job these days it's always hey we'll give you 32 hours and for a person who was a- still able to afford their rent now you're taking one day's day uh, pay off the had salary now you're looking at homelessness yeah i think one of the big tricks is uh because under the aca it's it's 30 hours uh, a week up to a month and that's when you qualify for benefits so a lot of people get 28 hour shifts or 28 hours in a week um and it's these weird little games that they play that's really pushing the housing crisis here uh one thing that i think people don't consider enough is that groups like yours are actually uh going to be on the forefront of the climate crisis because as we saw with the Woolsey fire and as we saw in Paradise especially where people are pushed away from urban areas into uh more wilderness areas they're susceptible to wildfire it's harder to deliver services out there i was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your relief efforts up in Woolsey or after the Woolsey fire and then also if you see that as something that you're going to have to keep doing so with the Woolsey fire um when the fire happened we actually went myself and Carlos Marroquin where we went up to Woodland Hills Vessels to help a friend but the roads were blocked and we were still looking for a way to help and it de- the shower aspect didn't even occur to us we went to a couple of the shelters and of the three shelters in north uh, the valley one didn't have showers and a second one didn't have hot water and these are open showers gym showers which you know most of the population in these shelters were older people the wealthy would stay for one night go check into a hotel the next day but we ha- we had uh, at taft we had a group of adults from a senior living center that got affected so these folk didn't have the means to get a hotel room so they were stuck in a shelter but when you're looking at older individual how are you going to use a open shower first of all first of all and second there was no hot water so when we saw that we um, mobilized both our trailers and we went up and we started offering hot showers to the people at both of those locations um 
I think the Red Cross did an amazing job. It's just that the infrastructure they had to use didn't have the proper utilities. And I'm sure, you know, they would have gotten it running, but it was a matter of timing. But they, you know, hands down, Red Cross, they mobilized super fast and they they took the brunt of the bur burden for helping the people. Um, do we want to keep on engaging uh, or helping in disaster situations? We just found out by doing so, we have the capacity. So that's something we're gonna expand on. So when the Wuzi fire happened, we actually, uh, that week that we responded, uh, we only service five sites mm. out of the 10. Mm. So we are looking at a way of expanding in the near future where we're gonna have maybe additional trailer so that if there is a disaster, we can respond to it without, um, you know, um, changing the regular schedule. And for uh, the folks that you were bringing relief to, um, are you worried that a lot of them are going to end up on the street after this? Their houses have been destroyed, rents in those areas are going to jump while they rebuild. Like this is a really precarious position for people who don't have saved wealth. You know, that, that's, you know, I, I, I ran, uh, you know, you hear a lot during the thing, I heard from a few people saying, oh, they have money, mm -hmm. right? I ran into a lot of people whose situations were very, very, um, they were in a very vulnerable situation because I, I ran into a couple of people. They had inherited their homes from their parents. Mm. It was paid off. They were working at entry-level wage jobs. Some of those people didn't have the means to purchase insurance. Mm. So, And since they weren't carrying a mortgage, they weren't required to carry insurance. Exactly. And I mean, fire insurance in a place where you're susceptible to fires can be above 3,000 a year. Mm -hmm. That's a decent chunk of change. And one thing I learned after the fires was because those areas are susceptible to fires, some of the deductibles in those areas is like $50,000. The deductibles go from 50,000 to $100,000. So when you look at, okay, first off, everything I have got destroyed. Now I had to buy that upfront and look at interim living. And you know, when you're displaced, your costs are high, you gotta eat out everything, all that. Unfortunately, I mean, you know, we saw a lot of people who are struggling. I mean, people are literally signing up for FEMA aid. Mm -hmm. Like, and you saw the desperation because they knew that they didn't have the means to get back on their own feet. And also for some of the people who had homes in certain areas, the fires destroyed so much vegetation that, you know, some of these areas, it's hard to get a building permit. Doesn't matter if you already had a home there. Now it's a completely different area that's susceptible to mudslides. So like Malibu, now you had to go through the Coastal Commission to get another building permit. And in LA, anyone knows, getting a building permit could be a couple of years easy, so. It's it's sad, but a lot of people are in a very tough position. I think it you know displayed a lot of the uh, class differences we had here when you had like Kim and Kanye West uh, were able to save their neighborhood by hiring private firefighters, and other people were kind of uh, just left out on their own. Do you think the state is building the capacity to help in the future? Do you think the state is ahead of this or behind this? Um, I you know I think. Something like the Woolsey fire was to such epic proportions that, you know, it's tough to be ready for something like that. Mm -hmm. But I also see a part of it where we should have done more to um, 
make sure that these fires didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Now, one one of the simplest things is when it came to the fine Belair Brentwood like uh, oh, the, the skirball fire, yeah. Exactly. And it happened because of uh, a homeless individual who used a fire to cook some food. Mm-hmm. Having a unmanageable homeless population is just a recipe for more fires to happen. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we talked about street sweeps and whatnot. You're literally pushing people out of sight into places like these. You know, at the end, climate change, everything intersects. So unless we address all of these issues, we're never going to be prepared and it's only going to happen again. Yeah. And what, um, how do you feel, like, do you feel like you guys uh, succeeded in your relief efforts? Um, that you did the best that you could, that you wish you could have done more? I know this is a huge, like, situation a lot that you all took on. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, how do you, how, you know, do you have things you would do different in the future, things you would do the same? Um, so I think because the Red Cross had such a good response and because Pierce College took in the most number of evacuees and had enough resources, the need for us wasn't great. And mind you, again, even though there's a lot of people who are in a vulnerable state, this happened in a place where there was enough people who had access to resources, people who could check into a hotel easy. If this happened in a different demographic or a wealth demographic, I don't think it would have been something we'd have been able to help, like we would have been completely overwhelmed. So because the need was not as much, we were able to give the appropriate response. I had every person who needed a shower, we were able to serve. And you know, one of the, also one of the great things is like, our volunteer base mobilized so fast. I mean, literally, we had a volunteer on operation every morning from 7 a.m. till 10 a.m. and then again from 7 p.m. till 10 p.m. So not a single person was turned away. But if this happened in a different area where people had less access to hotels and all the means, would we, would we be able to address it? That's something we're working on on being able to address in the future. And you mentioned your volunteer base, and we have a couple of Ground Game team members who volunteer with you. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, the size of your base, how you cultivate that, and, and you know what people's experiences uh, volunteering with Showers of Hope. I think, so, so one of the things is we keep all of our actions separate. So we had Monday Night Mission first, where it was basically addressing the issues on Skid Row. Then we had the Shower of Hope, which was basically addressing the need of showers for people on the street. And then we had a hashtag Sheeters, which was completely different and advocacy work. But I think the reason we have so great volunteers is our goal has always been, hey, it's not just let's give a sandwich and walk away. Let's give a shower and walk away. It's about, okay, how do we help in the short term? And we recognize the fact that we, what we're doing is providing comfort and dignity to people. But we also try to do the best we can to offer solutions that are in more permanent. So I think that's one thing that's re- unfortunately lacking in a lot of nonprofits in LA due to various reasons. Maybe because they're overwhelmed, maybe because they don't have the resources, maybe because they don't know. But it's always been like a quick response of, oh, Let's give a sandwich and that's it. But I think what's definitely needed is a full spectrum response. You you have the people who are hungry. 
You have the people who need a shower. You have the people who need shelter. You have the people who need housing. On the other side, you have the people who need mental health care. Mm -hmm. You have the people who need substance abuse recovery. It's a it's a, and then you have the aspect of we don't have any housing, then we don't have any um, reliable employment. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's not a single issue. It's this huge, three hundred sixty degree mammoth problem. But understanding that there is a problem and we are chipping away slowly is something I think our volunteers appreciate and they see the difference that we are able to make. And also, you know, we always say like our volunteers are our best asset. Mm -hmm. You know, like from the Woolsey Fire again, like, you know, we were doing five locations during the day our regular locations with volunteers, same time, we had two shifts going in the morning at night all the way up in the valley. Mm -hmm. So people just showed up. I mean, I had so many, um, you know, so many of our people, John Pelzer again, uh, Patricia Leon, um, uh, of course our regulars, Lisa Marina, Angie Bravo, everyone, you know, everybody showed up and a lot of other people who were, we were working together on Yes on 10, they just showed up, you know. 6 a.m. in the morning, you get these people that are like, hey, we're here, nobody's here, okay, no, we get in there. And, you know, it, it's amazing to see that the people who are involved will stop at nothing until they affect change. And that, that's the beautiful thing, and that's what we always try to be, want to be focused on. How do we always take the next step? Mm. No matter how small, no matter where, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's this, it's that, you have to do this. It's a huge problem. It requires multiple solutions. How do we deliver those multiple solutions? And, you know, we're not going to be able to hit everything. I'm not gonna try to even start addressing healthcare, even though it's such a huge behemoth need, which is leading to homelessness, but we're not there yet. But maybe one day, let's chip away one by one and let's get to the next peg. And once we get there, let's look at the peg up above from that. Mm -hmm. And I wanna ask, because with the work I've done with people who are unhoused and here in LA, it can be really trying work. Like it can be really hard and really demotivating because it seems like such a huge problem. How do you stay motivated? How do you keep your volunteers motivated? I think one of the things we do is we stress on the fact of accepting people for who they are. You know, one of, Monday Night Mission was the beast. It was, you you know, skid row five nights a week and you see people in very tragic conditions. A lot of mental illness and you want to see a change. You want to help a person today and tomorrow you want to see them better. But the truth is they're not going to be better tomorrow. As long as they're there, as long as they don't have the services they need, they're not going to be better. And then on top of that, people have to come to a point where they are ready to ask for services. So one thing we stressed was never try to look for change the next day. Let's work together. Let's see how we can do as much as we can. But if we're coming back and we see an individual there tomorrow who's hungry, let's give him something to eat let's be a friend and let's see how we can bring him a little bit of comfort and take a win from there. Mm -hmm. 
trying to address the immediate needs and alleviate some of the immediate suffering. That's it, it's a hard one to take on. It's one of those accept the things I can't change. You you have to take the small wins. Mm-hmm. You have to take the small wins. I mean, Skid Row. The things we saw was just like I mean, so many people we knew there who died. Mm-hmm so many people who were murdered, so many people who were attacked, so many people who had, you know, everything from, you know, we knew so many people who had their legs cut off, mm. people who were suffering with diabetes, staph infections. Just, you have to take the small wins. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, like, it might be, like, you know, some days, like, you're there and you see the most horrific things and you come back and you got to look back and say, hey, you know, Today's win is if we go back the next day, mm-hmm. and we would go back the next day. And some of those wins take take quite a bit. I remember there was a story you posted on Facebook about a, a pregnant woman um, who was at an encampment, and the the amount of time it took you to, to eventually get her help. I was hoping you'd talk a little bit about what it's like interfacing with services. Like when you find somebody who needs help, what's it like to get them that help? You know, that was a very, very complex situation. The individual that we tried to help you know, one of the first things we do with anyone we try to help is we try to get a name. We try to give them, a, find their identity and address that person with the identity. This was a person, probably this lady was probably, I'd say, mid-30s to early 40s who didn't know her own name. Wow. She was mentally disabled. Um, like, you know, I remember Claudia from LA on Cloud Nine calling me and I pull up and like, there's a woman on a blank on a on a mattress half on the street half of the mattress is covered in bed bugs and then 10 feet down the line there's a street sweeping machine on the way and it's super loud and what it first occurred to me that this woman was doing exactly what we did when we were young she covered her head with a blanket thinking that that was going to take the demons away thinking she was going to be okay but this um woman in her mid-30s or 40s who was eight months pregnant she didn't want help she I think it was at a point she couldn't understand what a pregnancy was and she was so frustrated by it and you know it, it ended up we had to get multiple entities involved to get her the help and part of it was using an approach that you know it was such a complex situation on one side you want to let her be because she's already traumatized on the other side of the coin, the day before was something like 97 degrees at that day during the day. That day was going to be like 95 degrees. She's eight months pregnant. Are you going to risk? Uh, are you going to risk a miscarriage? And we don't have the resources to have someone by her 24/7. If she had a miscarriage at night, that baby's gone. Yeah. So it was ultimately came and if you wanted to do anything the only option we had was to commit her to an involuntary mental health hold which is called uh, 5150 but what would happen if she went into labor at that point when they're doing because she was combative Mm. but ultimately the the decision we came to and you know we made there was you know what if she does suffer a miscarriage then at least we can have paramedics there at that time to take the baby away rather than risk her going into labor. You don't know when she's going to labor. It could be the next day. It could be three weeks from now. And if she has a baby in the middle of the night, we can't risk that. Let's do it. And then just, I mean, it was just pure luck that when LAPD responded and, you know, they they were very, 
I, I do give kudos to them because they were very tactical. They kind of came in at a way that she understood that it wasn't, there was no option, other option at that point. She decided to get on the stretcher by herself. So it was just like, you know, it, it was just a super complex situation. And the end of the situation, I still have the photo with me is this 30 something year old woman being taken away on a stretcher cuddling on to like a four foot tall soft toy and you know it's a lot of the situations that come out of people suffering from severe mental illness is you know it's it's really hard to address those situations especially you know when the truth is there's really no infrastructure to address it in the first place yeah i was going to say these are systemic problems with real human costs and that like even if we put in a perfect system tomorrow getting all the individuals like helped and solved for would still be um, very, very hard and a lot of work. Do you see this crisis getting better in the near future? And I know that's probably not the happiest question at the moment. Um, you know, all, if we continue at the same pace of what we, we've been addressing it as, act, actually, I take that back. I think no. I think the fight for Prop 10, even though we lost, there was so much mobilization of people. Mm-hmm. I think now we have a better base to try to push more change. Mm-hmm. So if we address it the way we are addressing it right now, it's only gonna get worse. Mm-hmm. Housing crisis is only gonna lead to more people on the street. But if we use that mobilization we had in the past three months, if we keep pushing it forward and we look at addressing all the angles, mm-hmm. then I have hope. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and on that note, um, for people who do want to get involved with Showers of Hope for donating, for volunteering, how can they connect with y'all? And uh, what would you suggest for people looking to get involved immediately? You know, one of, one of the things I've, I always tell people is come and volunteer because it's this, it, it was my own reaction. I, I mean, you know, I research the showers a lot, but to see an actual person come in, talk to them, take a shower, come out as a different person, so happy, so different, so come, they, it was literally, they were comfortable with themselves, is a break from the narrative of what we see as people on the street. So I always want people to come out talk to people before, see see how people are after shower and experience that. Mm-hmm. We always need help, but part of that is understanding that every person deserves dignity, understanding that these people have an e- not just an equal say, but an equal right to live in our own neighborhoods is a very important part of this. And our whole goal is to build community around every location we serve. So the first thing I would tell anyone who's looking to volunteer is come and volunteer, take a look, see how it is interacting with people. And you know, even if it's beyond the shower of hope, even if it's your, you're volunteering at a different organization, don't give a sandwich and walk away get to know people, talk to them, get to know their name because understanding their name means that you're a step closer to their story. And if you get to know their story, then you understand, okay, what we need to do beyond that. So uh, for the people who want to volunteer, I mean, we serve Monday through Saturday. We always need volunteer. We are going to expand in the near future. So www.theshowerofhope.org or The Shower of Hope on Facebook, just message us and Mm -hmm. We need the help. And y'all take donations? 
Absolutely. Yeah, and I assume those are always very useful. This is a, a billion-dollar-plus crisis that we have year over year. Um, I want to say thank you very much for coming in and joining us, and also just for the amount of work that y'all are doing. It's really inspiring, and it's really it's not easy being out there on the front lines. Thank you. No, um, I, I think it's, you know... I think it's heartening to see everything that's come from Ground Game, from that race that Jessica had, how much you guys are involved and how much organization it's bringing to the streets. Um, And, you know, it's, you know, in everything we've done, we've always known that we had support from Ground Game. And that's always been great to know. And it's always great to see the initiatives you guys take and do. So... Uh, you know, thank you for having me here. And, you know, I, I'm just re- really grateful for everybody at Ground, you and everybody at Ground Game for, like, you know, being a partner in this fight. We're going to build some power and fix some stuff. It's going to be great. Thank you very much, Mel. Thank you, Tim. Thank you.